Thanks for downloading this episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene. If you listen to audiobooks as well, be sure to visit audibletrial.com forward slash bionicplanet for a free 30-day trial at audible.com. The address again is audibletrial.com forward slash bionicplanet. And that's bionicplanet without dots, dashes, or spaces, as opposed to my website, which is bionic planet. Well, I'm afraid we'll have to call the garage, Mrs. Olson. Oh, thank you so much. I, I hate to be such a bother. No bother at all. Well, while we're all waiting, I'll make some coffee. Don't you think she's got enough trouble? Oh, I wish I could make coffee he likes. I find... According to legend, a goat herd named Khalid started the whole thing around 750 A.D. He was herding his goats through the misty, mountainous forests of Kaffa at the eastern edge of the kingdom of Abyssinia when they began devouring the red berries for which the region is named. The more they ate, the more rambunctious they became. So Khalid ate some too, and he found himself becoming extraordinarily productive. At his wife's urging, he brought his berries to the monks who lived along the shores of Lake Tana. But the head monk tossed them into the fire, and the roasting aroma enticed the other monks, who ground them up and mixed them with water to create the drink we now call coffee, which they used to keep themselves awake through long hours of prayer and meditation. I love that story, although, unfortunately, it's probably just a myth. What we do know for a fact, however, is that coffee originated in ancient Abyssinia, which is now modern-day Ethiopia, and that Ethiopia is still Africa's largest producer of coffee. The country is also, however, especially susceptible to climate change. Its rainfall has been decreasing since the 1970s, which means the country gets less rain now than it did during the famines of the early 1980s. The United Nations Environment Program lists Ethiopia as one of the 10 countries that will be hardest hit by rising temperatures. Fortunately, the government has been working with environmental NGOs to stave off disaster by helping farmers manage their land in ways that have a better chance of surviving in a crazy climate. The NGO World Vision, for example, helped farmers in the district of Walaito Sodo plant trees in among their crops, infusing nitrogen into the soil and recharging 12 depleted springs while putting 2,000 people to work. It financed the effort by generating offsets for the greenhouse gases that those trees pulled from the atmosphere. We've covered projects like these on Bionic Planet before, and nearly $3 billion has flowed into them worldwide, according to Ecosystem Marketplace's latest State of Forest Carbon Finance report, which is due out in December. In 2016 alone, projects covered an area the size of Nicaragua, But to really fix the climate mess, we have to move from isolated projects to integrated programs that cover entire states or even countries. And that's why Ethiopia's national government is using carbon finance to completely restructure the economy of Oromia State, home to about half of the country's remaining forest. The World Bank's Biocarbon Fund is supporting the effort 
with a 10-year financing program that links finance to emission reductions and could serve as a template for other states and regions around the world. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet? Or is nature itself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we look at two little-known funds that are designed to promote sustainable land use around the world, the Biocarbon Fund and the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility. Both were set up under the World Bank, and our first guest, Ellie Baroudi, coordinates them, while our second guest, Karen Kahela, acts as their point person in Mozambique and Ethiopia. Climate finance can be incredibly confusing, especially if you don't know the history behind this stuff. So we're starting today's show back in 2004, the year before the Kyoto Protocol came into effect. We'll start with an enlightening discussion that I had with Ellie Baroudi, who lays out the history and mission of both the Biocarbon Fund and the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility. Then we cut to Karen Kahela who will take some of the concepts that Ellie explains and show us how they are being applied in Ethiopia. Then we come back to Ellie, who will talk a bit more about where we go from here. Before jumping into my conversation with Ellie, let me take you back to 2004. The Kyoto Protocol was set to begin in 2005, and it was an agreement within the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Its main financing vehicle was something called the Clean Development Mechanism, or CDM, which made it possible for companies in rich countries to reduce their carbon footprints by paying for wind farms or solar energy projects in poor countries. CDM projects could also generate offsets by restoring forests, which absorb massive amounts of carbon dioxide. But the issue of using forests to offset industrial emissions was a contentious one. So offsets generated through afforestation, reforestation, which is the technical term for planting or restoring forests, would expire after a few years. As a result, very few companies were buying them. But even beyond forest offsets, the CDM was something completely new, and countries asked the World Bank to help them test it so that they could better understand what works and what doesn't. In 2004, a number of governments asked the bank, not just for land use, but all sectors, energy, transport. You know, this is a new area. It's a high-risk area. We don't know how these, how these mechanisms work. Can you help us pilot? And so basically, the World Bank set up a whole number of carbon 
finance um, trust funds that help to address the different sectors. And the one that we set up to work on land use was the biocarbon fund. And it was really done to help developing countries. So we looked very much at the clean development mechanism at the Kyoto Protocol. So those were the first, if you like, rules in the international sphere that we ever had to work with. But in the land use negotiations, we were very limited by what we could do. And the rules under the clean development mechanism only allowed for reforestation and afforestation. So we ended up with a fund that really looked at addressing a very specific piece of land use rehabilitation, if you like. I should point out that the Kyoto Protocol wasn't the only game in town. Environmental NGOs and green companies had been experimenting with land use offsets since the late 1980s. And by 2004, the science of carbon accounting was pretty solid. The problem then, as now, was something called leakage, which is what happens if you save a patch of forest in one part of a country, but then the person you stop goes down the road and chops a different part of the forest. There are plenty of solutions to that, and it often depends on who is chopping the forest. If the deforestation is coming from subsistence farming, moving into the forest, and you reduce it by helping them manage their land more sustainably, then there is no leakage because they don't go chopping someplace else. But if the deforestation is coming from giant palm oil companies, then the only way to really deal with leakage is to make sure you're accounting for all emissions from a country's forests, farms, and fields. That's something that no developing country was able to do back in 2004. And the Biocarbon Fund's early investments focused by necessity on isolated projects because they were designed to test new methods. They were small. Um, on average, um, we had something like five to 20,000 hectares of reforestation per project. I mean, I think that's probably the scale that we managed. And across a portfolio of activities, it still didn't add up to a huge amount. But it was, it was extremely valuable in helping us understand a few things. How you can generate an asset from this kind of work. So how do you get a ton of CO2? How do you translate the work you're doing on the ground into a ton of CO2? What makes these projects function? What hinders them? And there we also learned that you can't really address climate only through reforestation. Reforestation alone doesn't work because forests are usually being chopped for a reason. Sometimes because a company wants to graze cattle there so that you and I can have cheap hamburgers. Sometimes because subsistence farmers are desperate for charcoal. Planting trees doesn't fix any of that. And it became clear that more greenhouse gases are released when a living forest is killed than when trees are planted someplace else. Also, forests aren't usually killed overnight. They're usually degraded first. As a result, support began to grow for using carbon finance to avoid deforestation, to save endangered forests rather than just planting new ones, as well as to support climate-safe agriculture. 
and our projects were asking us, please help us. We've got these standing trees, can we not incorporate them? We've got these agriculture areas, can we not incorporate them? Then, at year-end climate talks in Montreal in 2005, Papua New Guinea wrangled avoided deforestation back onto the agenda, but with a new name, Reducing Emissions from Deforestation, or R-E-D, RED. The focus wasn't just planting trees, but actively slowing deforestation. By 2006, negotiators agreed to explore options for incorporating degradation, often called the second D, which is harder to measure. So red became red, but it went from R-E-D to R-E-D-D. And then climate-safe agriculture got woven into the mix, and that became the plus in red plus. At the time, however, the only experimentation on red plus was happening in voluntary markets, which focused on site-specific projects. To establish rules for developing red plus under the United Nations, countries needed to test it at a larger scale. We were asked, can we start thinking about this? And obviously it wasn't just us. In parallel, the forest countries were concerned. And you mentioned they brought this up right in Montreal. Mm-hmm. And basically, uh, collectively, uh, the, the world recognized that deforestation was a significant issue and something needed to be done. And in the same vein, the bank set up the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility to work on piloting what it would mean. Um, I think we were different to the VCS and the CDM because we went for a much larger scale. So one of the things we learned was if we stay doing things at a small scale, it won't have an impact on climate. And it won't have the same impact if we do it well on communities and livelihoods. And we really need to make a difference to climate, but in an environmentally and socially friendly way. So that meant we recognized the need for scale. And a lot of people recognized it at the same time. So I think one of the difficulties for a lot of project developers were understanding you know, the shift in mindset from project to subnational or national. And we haven't gone to national mm-hmm. yet, Steve. We're really mainly in the subnational, and that's challenging enough because the scale is still pretty large. But yeah. we can touch on that separately. But so I think that took us into a different category of type of work, which meant that there was nothing around us that we could fit into. So that meant, how do you do things differently? And we really sat down and thought, well, we can't do it on our own. It's never going to work. The scale is too big. The issues are contentious. We're being accused of things because people just don't really know what's happening. So let's make sure that we have this very open platform and have the discussions. As with the Biocarbon Fund, the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility, or FCPF, would be a fund that puts money into forest carbon initiatives. Also like the Biocarbon Fund, the FCPF would get its money from countries and development banks, and it would pay money out based on how much the projects they invested in reduced greenhouse gases. Unlike the Biocarbon Fund, however, the FCPF would invest in initiatives testing RED+. But that still left huge swaths of the rural economy outside the testing zone, 
and it also didn't address the needs of companies looking to purchase sustainably harvested commodities. And then more recently, we did set up one more fund, which is the Initiative for Sustainable Forest Landscapes. The, and it's part of the Biocarbon Fund family. But there we're looking at how do you bring in land areas that aren't classified as forests. So what do you do with agriculture areas? What do you do with wetlands? What do you do with grasslands? Can you do something that's a little bit more comprehensive? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting uh, for me to see the evolution of the financing streams. And I'm not sure the degree to which it's an evolution of my understanding or it's an evolution of the, the streams themselves. But when you first announced the ISFL, that was in Warsaw at the Climate Talks was the first I heard of that. And that was where the money for the actual payments for performance would eventually be coming from the governments of, I think it was UK and Norway. Uh, and then maybe, and I think Germany had some, some in there as well. I don't remember. But it was a, a government to government uh, payments based on the em emission reduction, based on whether they managed to slow deforestation and relative to the baseline enough that the emissions would be reduced. But then when, when the private sector started talking about their involvement, it was companies like Unilever coming in with offtake agreements. And they were saying, okay, if you guys yes. can actually implement sustainable agriculture programs, we will come in and we will guarantee to purchase from this area. Was that the first time that was done or was that just the first time I noticed it? How and and how do how do these big supply chain drivers start to weave into all of the carbon finance that you that you guys okay. are working with? To answer that question, I have to go back a little bit in time also. Okay. So when we uh, set up the original biocarbon fund, we had a mix of buyers. We had government buyers and we had a number of private sector companies that were buyers. So basically our involvement with the private sector was we deliver to them tons of CO2. When we started thinking about the new funds, the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility and the ISFL, we wanted to keep the private sector engaged with us. And so we basically set out to have a series of conversations to understand you know, what would it mean to keep the private sector on board in, in the funds as they evolve? And any um, idea of the uh, private sector coming in as buyers of tons of CO2 was quickly, we learned quickly this wasn't going to happen because at the time we were thinking of the initiative for sustainable forest landscapes, the carbon market, the bottom was taken out of it, and nobody knew where the demand signals were going to come from. So to summarize, in 2004, the World Bank creates the Biocarbon Fund to test financing mechanisms for restoring forests under the Kyoto Protocol. Then in 2008, they set up the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility, or FCPF, to test Red Plus. And the FCPF had two funds of its own, the Readiness Fund and the Carbon Fund. And finally, in 2013, the Biocarbon Fund set up the Initiative for Sustainable Forest Landscapes, or ISFL, to test a whole variety of financing mechanisms that can support sustainable agriculture in developing countries. They said from the start that the ISFL would begin with between four and six jurisdictions around the world and that Ethiopia's Oromia State would be one of them. 
In our next segment, we'll see how that initiative is playing out. But first, one more thing we need to clarify. Both the FCPF and the ISFL are built on a two-phased model, with a readiness phase and a payments for performance phase. That's why the FCPF has two distinct funds. The readiness fund helps countries develop the tools needed to measure carbon flows and stocks across an entire jurisdiction, meaning they have to be able to monitor, report, and verify the ways their actions impact the amount of greenhouse gases flowing into and out of these land systems. Only after that phase is finished does the carbon fund step in, and they make payments based on emission reductions that have gone through that monitoring, reporting, and verification, or MRV, process. But of course, it's more complicated than that. that it was really important to have a pot of money that was going to help countries get the foundations in place that they need. And so we set up the Readiness Fund that was giving grant funding to countries to help them with those building blocks. And collectively, the fund governance structure decided what those building blocks would be. So what are the institutions that are leading on these programs? How are they consulting with all the stakeholders that are um, involved in these areas and in the land use sector? Are there going to be needs for MRV and et cetera? What are they going to be? And if you do want to address your drivers, what are they? And how are, we, are you going to address them? And you're going to need blueprints. And every blueprint is going to be different for every country. So that's where the idea came out to, to have this readiness fund, this technical assistance money to help countries put together what we call the red strategies, which help to define where they want to go. And then in parallel to that, we um, also, a few, well, it was actually a few years later, we set up the carbon fund because the whole idea is to provide incentives to get countries to that end point where they've undertaken the different investments needed or the changes in behavior needed or the different practices needed in order to get good economic growth but with a low footprint. It does start to become technical because if you want to think about the next step of the program you need to think about okay these are my high priority jurisdictions in a country and most strategies identify their top jurisdictions where they want to address issues. I mean this was very much the case for example in Ethiopia where uh, a national red strategy was done and they identified, for example, that Oromia was a really critical uh, piece of the puzzle. It was an important area. It's where their forests were. It's where they were getting a lot of deforestation. So the focus was going to be on Oromia. And that's where you start thinking of the next generation of work, right? Because it starts going into a specific area, targeted actions, um, and then if you want to make payments, you do need that MRV system, so the monitoring, reporting, verification, you need to understand how to set a baseline, you need to think of the reference level. So this is all sort of generates into a lot more technical work, but hopefully by the time they reach that stage of intricate technical work, or more intricate technical work, they've got good foundations 
from the readiness funding that's just really helped the country get its mind around which direction it wants to go in. Who's going to champion that in country? Which ministry? How are they going to set themselves up to do this? So uh, on average, it's taken a good few years, I mean, uh, three, four, five years for countries to reach this stage. I remember looking at a couple of countries and just really being amazed at how complicated it really was to look at your forests and decide first what constitutes a forest and then how to measure the de- the degradation, sending people out into the forest, taking random samples, doing you know remote sensing from the sky, ground truthing. It was really a, a lot involved. And now, so we so these countries they they sit down, they 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 decide they want to join. They get the readiness funding, then they put together their national uh, strategies. They submit those, and at some point they've got everything up to speed, and then they're able to receive uh, payments for performance. And how many countries are at that point? Now, we have, as mentioned, forty-seven countries that had done that had gone through the readiness stage, and more than half of them are at the stage of reporting where they are. Um, we've got, I think, around fourteen of them that now have their strategies ready. We call them mm-hmm. uh, our packages mm-hmm. that are presented uh, to the to the readiness fund. And Steve, you know, you you gave a really nice summary of the readiness fund. But what you missed, and I miss saying, is in the life of the grant, they come back and they report to the fund halfway through how they're spending the money, what they're doing. So, And this happens in front of all the governance structure. And then they present also their readiness package and the red strategy. So there's a lot of discussion with the countries, what they can do better, how they can do it. It's a great opportunity if somebody feels a little bit disenfranchised to say, hey, I'm not 100% sure that was the right thing or we went the right way. And it gives us a chance to course correct. And we've done that in the past. So that's where the stakeholder views are very helpful. I think the readiness fund is the nice preparation, but then you went straight to performance payments. But it doesn't work like that. We do have quite a stage in between. And can you maybe, that that stage in between is um, this the consultation that you're talking about right now, right? Where you're getting, or, or what? Uh, what? So, so let's go back to Ethiopia as an example. So um, Ethiopia, in the Ethiopian government, presented their R package at the last FCPF meeting in Laos. So basically, as Ethiopia has said, uh, thank you very much for the grant funding I've received. It's really helped me on readiness, and I've done X, Y, Z. I've put together platforms for various stakeholders, a red, a red technical committee. I'm using this as an example, Steve. I don't know the exact details of every program, but right, you know, right. this is the kind of thing they'll come back on. They'll say, we've got the institutional arrangements organized, Ministry of Environment and Forestry leads, but we're going to work with the key regional governments because we know in Oromia, for example, this is an important topic. So, for example, the delegation in Laos was both national government and the regional government. And they have then identified where their issues are in terms of where the drivers are coming from, how they want to address them, etc. So, right, you've got this big document that that helps with the description of where they are. So that's in a way the readiness process. But the next thing Ethiopia wants to do is to try to generate uh, results-based payments from Oromia. Right, so they identified Oromia. So now looking at Oromia, how do they do that? They take the jurisdiction of Oromia. It's an administrative boundary. It's great because there is a regional government that addresses it. So they're looking at a mix of policy changes that can be done. 
So what can we, you know, what can be put into place to help? But they're also looking um, at actions. So for example, they're looking at a whole mix of activities, uh, participatory forest management, for example, um, cook stoves and energy mix in there. Uh, what can the private sector do, for example, to help uh, development? And we've got a nice example where they're uh, coffee is a very important uh, product in Oromia. So there's a nice program set up with, for example, Nespresso helping to bring better technical quality. So it's like a mosaic of actions, a mosaic of policy, but in a defined area, which is still a large area. And that's, this, that's where countries mainly are at. They're at that stage where they've got the blueprints. So they need to start costing these out. What does it mean if I want to do more on coffee? What does it mean if I want to do more on participatory forest management? Do I have the structures in place? Do I need new structures? Do I have the funding? Do I need that funding? If I want it, how do I get it? And it's all done in, in, um, in a way that's very open. And the, these documents are all available so anyone can see the blueprints. And I think the, you know, if they can, you know, there, there is an onus on these countries raising the funding for investments. But we're hoping that between the readiness money that's available, the good foundations that are there, that there will be other donors, other investors, they could also be private sector investors that are willing to join forces on certain programs and activities that help uh, the country achieve where it wants to go in terms of its ambitions for green growth. And that's what we'd work with them on in terms of measuring, you know, how they're doing in terms of the tons of CO2, the emission reductions generated, um, we'd work, well, I mean, we find we have to work alongside countries from a technical perspective still, because these are sort of big questions that we're all figuring out. In a few minutes, we'll see how Ethiopia is figuring that out, and then we'll come back to Ellie to see where we go from here. But first... These financing flows are critical to fixing the climate mess. But you can help too. How? Well, I've been listening to an audiobook called Cooler, Smarter, Practical Steps for Low Carbon, which is based on an in-depth two-year study by experts at the Union of Concerned Scientists. It offers clear, concise descriptions of what we as individuals can do to shrink our own carbon footprints by 20% or more. And you can get the audiobook and support Bionic Planet at the same time with a free 30-day trial by going to audibletrial.com forward slash Bionic Planet. That's audibletrial.com forward slash Bionic Planet. And Bionic Planet is a single word with no dots, dashes, or spaces. You can also support me directly by giving me a good five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to Bionic Planet or by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com I've set the patronage page up so that you can support me per episode but with a monthly cap so if you think $5 per month is good for a 5 episode month you can pledge $1 per episode but with a $5 monthly cap. That way if I don't manage to generate 5 episodes in a month you're not paying for something you didn't get. And if I go nuts and deliver 20 episodes one month you won't get whacked either. By the same token, you can offer $5 per episode, or 10 or 50 or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
My next guest is Karen Kahela, who is the point person for both the FCPF and the ISFL in Ethiopia and Mozambique. We'll be looking at Ethiopia's climate action plan. Then we'll see how those two funds support both the national effort and the specific effort in Oromia through the Oromia Forested Landscape Program, which is a 10-year program broadly divided into two activities. One is a cluster of mobilization grants, totaling $18 million for specific activities, and the other is results-based finance that will flow in the form of payments for emission reductions of up to 10 million tons of carbon dioxide. What's interesting to me is how this all fits together. Ethiopia tapped the FCPF Readiness Fund to become Red Ready, and now the ISFL program is building on that process to support sustainable agriculture across the state of Oromia. A quick warning on the audio, there was a glitch in the recording software that leaves some little blips and skips when Karen speaks, so it sounds like an old record instead of a new digital recording but I think you can figure out what she's saying and it might even force you to pay closer attention. The Ethiopian government has been working on these issues for a while. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what they've done to date. Okay. So the Ethiopia government, they have uh, very big ambitions in in the forest sector or in the climate arena. Um, for a couple of years, they they have already they have created and launched what is called the Cli- climate resilient green economy strategy, which they really uh, with this strategy they plan to be climate neutral by 2025, and also really reduce poverty in the country. Um, they also have like big targets to um, by 2020 to be able to reforestate or to plant 5 million hectares of forest in the, in the whole country. And as a long-term target, by 2030, they want to plant two, uh, 22 million hectares of forest. So Ethiopia has been participating act- actively in all these um, international conference for the climate, uh, like the COPs at the UNFCCC, and um, and they have been very bold and ambitious and saying, uh, international community, we really are committed and we have these big plans. And as a result of their commitments, um, several donors came to support their plans and, and, and strategies in the country. And, and by donors, you mean the countries that are paying into the ISFL? Correct. We're focusing on this uh, area of Oromia. Why is this area so important? We have been working with the government, the national level, since 2012. And then in 2013-14, the national level decided to pilot a jurisdictional RED program. RED uh, means uh, to reduce emissions from deforestation and degradation. So they really wanted to reduce deforestation in this whole state. And they selected Oromia because Oromia holds 51% of Ethiopia forest. It's also very important because of water security, not only for Ethiopia, but the whole Horn of Africa. Oromia, it's a very special place also because the coffee, uh, Arabica coffee, comes from the forests in, in Oromia. Uh, it's a big state. It has uh, almost 32 million hectares, which is around almost the size of Norway. 
and it has 32 million inhabitants, so it's a very populated state as well. Mm-hmm. And the deforestation, uh, the deforestation has been very high from 2000 to 2013. Uh, they lost around 500,000 hectares of forest. This is very important for the country, for the livelihoods of the population, so that's why Oromia Regional State was selected. There's a PowerPoint presentation that you gave, and I've got that in front of me. And I'm going to be keying off of that as I go through the questions. They're a nice logical sequence. And I wanted to make make sure the listeners know that this will be available online. I'll, if anybody wants to go and you know kind of get a little better better feel for what's happening, I'll take the the presentation that I'm using and make it available for download at bionic-planet.com. You outline the uh, the regional program quickly, briefly, and then you expand into the national policies. And maybe you could uh, talk about these uh, a little bit in a little bit more detail. You have got this uh, growth and transformation plan that the federal government established. What What is that all about? These are the government plans that they put together every five years and where they really define what are the major pillars for their development how to reduce poverty, Ethiopia is one of the poorest countries in the world, and um, how to create opportunities in the rural area, how to expand agricultural productivity, and also how to work with the forest communities and how to reduce deforestation in general. So the biggest drivers of deforestation uh, are also mentioned in this, uh, this growth and transformation plan, and they are tackling this, these drivers now because... Um, the uh, the community the, the population is still is collecting fuel wood for energy so around only five percent of Ethiopia has access to the grid and they are they have these plans on how to increase productivity how to provide other sources of energy they are working with distribution of cook stoves so they can reduce the consumptions of uh, fuel wood when they are cooking and working on another strategic way to engage communities in the forest, which is called participatory forest management. Can you flesh that out just a bit? I, I can imagine what participatory forest management is, but my imagination has um, led me astray before. This is where um, the government works with the communities uh, that are in the forest area. They give them like um, right to use, uh, and they set at the boundaries of the forest. So the communities are responsible for patrolling, for taking care, and they can also extract some non-timber forest products from this forest, they, or honey, coffee, or etc. And this has been a very successful way to protect the forest in in, Itio, in, in Oromia. So far, of these 9 million, they have 1.3 million hectares already under this, uh, this scheme. And the idea with this, this initial grant is to scale up this. Uh, and they have around 520 communities uh, already engaged in this type of exercise. So it's good for the livelihoods, for the, these households, but also to protect the forest. They're giving them control over over forested area that's still owned by the state, it sounds like, right? Yes. How much technical support do they have to give to these people to help them to make a go of this? So they, they also provide support on, organ, on, on helping the community get organized and to create a, a cooperative, so organizing themselves. And then they, they also provide technical assistance on how to patrol or to combat fi- forest fire, etc. 
and then with other bureaus that are also uh, in the in the in the community level, they can the the government all usually provide technical assistance on on like honey extraction or if they want to extract I don't know um, any other type of uh, like cardamom or any other type of spices and um, unfortunately they do not allow the communities to extract timber yet they have some exercises where communities can also extract timber from this forest but most of them they cannot yet but they could potentially in the future um, provide more technical assistance for a sustainable use of the forest also from the sector mm. so this has been important for the communities and they also receive technical assistance not only in the forest area but on the boundaries of the forest. Né? What type of agricultural products they potentially uh, plant in the, like in the buffer zone and, and so on. And now you mentioned earlier that, they, that the country wants to be carbon neutral by, was it 2025 you said or did you say Yes, 2025. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. And for doing that, they have these big commitments on promoting reforestation and afforestation activities in, in the country. So they, they plan to grow their economy by also increasing their, their energy supplies, I assume. Right, so they'll be they'll yes. be adding renewable energy, uh, like wind farms or solar installations. How are they going to be increasing? It's more their... solar. They are also they have some uh, um, power plants uh, coming from hydro hydropower plants. We also supported a forest sector review where we were able to identify the supply and demand, the current supply and demand of uh, of timber in the country. And Ethiopia is now importing a lot of timber, so. There is a huge potential for them to develop this uh, industry in the country. So this will help to generate jobs. Uh, they can create an outgrow scheme working with farmers to support these plantations. And then they can potentially even export timber in the future. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. So they're, they're chopping trees for firewood, but then they're importing timber. And if they manage their forests more sustainably, they can produce enough timber to become exporters of timber. Correct. And we were able to project for the next uh, 20 years what will be this demand. So we, are, they, we were really able to show to the government that there is a huge opportunity for, uh, for development of a forest sector in Ethiopia, a more uh, organized one. And this really combined with these international targets that Ethiopia managed to put to the international communities, not saying that by 2020 they want to restore 5 million hectares uh, of degraded land, putting forests, and by 2030, as I said, 22 million hectares of forest. They've been deforesting for a long time. How much of that former forest land is unsalvageable, or what has to be done to bring it back to life? You don't just go and plant trees, right? Isn't the soil degraded? And I mean, it's, it's, yes. it's a pretty difficult thing to do, right? It is a pretty difficult uh, thing to do. They still have 9 million hectares of forest, so it's important to mention that what is considered woodland is also forest for them. So it's not this dense forest that sometimes we are <clears throat> used to see in Brazil or in Indonesia, but it's a different type of forest in Ethiopia. No? But it's very important for the livelihood of the communities. So they are working with the communities. This is um, it's it's complicated because the soil uh, the soil is degraded. Sometimes they have erosion. But Ethiopia has been very successful on restoring landscapes and engaging communities 
and working with the communities. They have nurseries, they have technical assistants, and they, they provide the inputs, the seedlings, and sometimes fertilizers for, for these plantations. And so far, they have been very successful. Uh, they have a very good structure of the government going from the national level to the region and then to the zones level and then really going down from the districts and to the community level. So this is a, there is this um, institutional organization very well structured and they are able to, to trickle down into the communities and engage the communities on the, on the restoration of this, uh, these landscapes. Okay. Yeah, there's a couple of things I'm wondering if we just unpack before we move on, because uh, there's a lot of really interesting issues that you brought up. One, just to um, summarize, uh, the, they're at 9 million hectares of forest right now, and the goal is, is to restore 22 million hectares. I think I need to clarify that um, when I explain about Oromia, this Oromia region, this Oromia state, uh, has 9 million of forest. 9 million hectares of forest. The whole, uh, the whole Ethiopia country has about 18 million, one-eighth. Okay. So Oromia has okay. 50% of this forest. And these ambitious targets are for the whole country, and it's not gotcha. only for Oromia. Let me just uh, recap here at the, at the risk of repeating myself. I just want to make sure we're on the same page. So we're focusing on two things here. We're focusing on the FCPF, uh, the forest carbon, which is the the forest carbon partnership facility, and the ISFL, which is the initiative for sustainable forest landscapes. Now, the FCPF has these two funds. They've got the readiness fund and the carbon fund. And Ethiopia has gone through the readiness phase and is now able to receive payments for performance under the carbon fund. At the same time, I've got your PowerPoint here about the ISFL, which is focused on Oromia. And in this document, which I'll make available for download, by the way, at bionic-planet.com, that's bionic-planet.com, uh, you're describing three components to the ISFL part. Component Components one and two add up to a cluster of enabling efforts, these uh, mobilization grants. And then the third component comes at the end of that, and it's contingent on greenhouse gas emissions being reduced, basically countries backing the ISFL have agreed to buy up to 10 million tons of emission reductions if the country achieves its, its targets, its emission reduction targets. But those will not be offset, so, meaning the countries won't write those off against their own emissions. If Germany or Norway or whoever pays for these emission reductions, they can't then say we reduced our own emissions by X and X amount. Their, their payments for performance, but not offsets. And um, before we move on, can you maybe reiterate what you mean by red readiness? I use I use that term a lot, but I, I spoke but I spoke to Ellie right before I spoke to you, and she corrected me on my use. And I want to be sure we're on the same page. When you know, I know it goes it goes beyond just being able to measure the carbon flowing into and out of your forests. And I wonder if you could just elaborate on what else you see is involved in, in red readiness. When we say that the country is ready for red, we mentioned that they, they, have, um, they were able to comply with four major pillars. The first one is developing a national red strategy. Um, 
the second one is putting in place or having a lot of consultations with the local communities, with the regional level and national level, with all relevant stakeholders on this national strategy, and also preparing some, some safeguards instruments in case they want to really implement things on the ground. The third pillar is to prepare a residence emissions level that in case of Ethiopia it was submitted to the UNFCCC. And the fourth pillar is having in place what we call MRV system, a monitoring, reporting and verification system. Ethiopia, the national government, was able to prepare um, almost all of them. Uh, the, red, the national red strategy was still not approved, but they have a very advanced draft. And they have just recently, a month ago, we were all in Laos. Uh, we, have, um, we had a meeting with the Forest Carbon Partnership uh, Facility participants where Ethiopia presented what we call their readiness package. Mm -hmm. So they were just saying or showing to the world that they are ready for red. Né? Uh, they really managed to finalize all these milestones. And again, we have been working with them since 2013. And now they are ready also to go on the ground. And that's why we are, the Biocarbon Fund is supporting this Oromia Forest Landscape Program that I can mm -hmm. also explain a little bit about what it is. Go for it. The Biocarbon Fund Initiative for Sustainable Forest Landscapes, we, we, we were able to design with the support from, um, from, from the government, of course, um, uh, what, the, what we call Oromia Forest Landscape Program. And this program has basically two phases. The first phase is like an investment phase when things on the ground are being implemented. And the second phase is where uh, we will pay emissions reductions that are generated from this program, this jurisdictional mm -hmm. program. So just as the, the FCPF has two funds, the ISFL has two phases. Exactly. So we are right now on this investment phase and uh, we have been supporting them um, and this has like basically two components. One component is more focused on the enabling environment uh, and the other is working on investments on the ground. Mm -hmm. So maybe I can, ex uh, I can start explaining a little bit what yes. we are doing with them. Yes. yes. On the enabling environment, I mentioned the, the, the first set of activities is like working with the government um, on creating like a platform. This Oromia program, this is a big state, a big area, and the state has like big, these big commitments, uh, is creating like a coordination platform where they can invite all the relevant stakeholders that are implementing activities in the energy sector, forest sector, in the agriculture sector, all relevant to forest, in, um, in Oromia to, to, to talk and to coordinate their, their activities. Uh, they are also looking to um, um, ways where they can expand or try to bring more private sector investments. And for this, uh, they are first trying to do some analytics to understand what are the major barriers for private sector investment. And, um, and then the, the second component is more investments on the ground. So we are helping them to finalize a land use planning. Uh, we are helping them to implement afforestation and reforestation activities. And also um, working on participatory forest management. And now you're going out into these waredas. 
and trying to identify the ones that are most vulnerable. What, what exactly is a Wereda? Wereda is the district. Mm-hmm. So Oromia is divided in regions. Uh, Oromia is one region. And then um, they are divided in zones. Oromia has like 20 administrative zones. And then uh, instead of having districts, they do have what is called Woreda. And under Woreda, uh, when you get to the community level, then it's called Kebele. Mm-hmm. So they, they really have this, um, this structure. Okay. So we've got 18 million, this $18 million mobilization grant that will come in, and that will work for about five years. Um, and then you need to start getting the private sector finance involved. And there's a couple of ways you're doing that. You've, you've, you've got the reference here to uh, you're working with Nespresso, I guess. You, you said that you can't, they won't be able to do timber harvesting yet because there's not enough timber to harvest. The trees have to grow first, right? Um, mm-hmm. But but you are working, uh, There there is a, there is a, a project where Nespresso has gotten involved to help support the creation of climate-friendly That's, coffee, right? Is that? Yes. This is a very successful, I think, result from this uh, project. Uh, we were able to create a partnership with Nespresso, but this we, it was not only the Bar Carbon Fund, but we also had IFC, the International Finance Corporation, which is the part the, the, the World Bank that works with the private sector. So, so IFC had this, um, this engagement with Nespresso and then the Biocarbon Fund also came with part of the grant. So Nespresso, with the support of uh, an NGO, which is called TechnoServe, is implementing things um, on the ground in part of Oromia. We've introduced three new players here, so let's stop for a moment to see how they fit in. You've got Nespresso, which is a giant coffee company looking for sustainable supplies of coffee. You've got the International Financing Corporation, or IFC, which is the private sector arm of the World Bank and invests in businesses that generate a public good. You've also got TechnoServe, which is an NGO that also provides funding to businesses in developing countries. The ISFL awarded a $3 million grant through the IFC to something called the Nespresso Sustainability Innovation Fund to provide training to farmers in Oromia. Separately, IFC also provided a $3 million loan to Nespresso to increase shade tree planting within coffee farms and enhance the sustainability of wet mill processing. This project just started, but so far they had 17,000 holders farmers trained on sustainable mm-hmm. coffee production. And it's very relevant also that 34% of this is women. So mm-hmm. Ethiopia, it's very important to bring also women to the, to the, to the scenario. No? Mm-hmm. Also, with this Nespresso project, they already registered 32 wet mills for processing coffee beans. And all of them have this uh, Nespresso AAA sustainable quality program. They are registered and they are able now to, to sell uh, to Nespresso. And also they were able to plant shade trees on the coffee plantation. Mm-hmm. So this also helps to increase the quality of the coffee. This is very successful and uh, we are really, so part of this grant of the Biocarbon Fund 
is also to help them to identify other um, other partnerships like this, which is very successful, bringing the private sector to the landscape that help them to achieve their uh, very ambitious goals of reducing deforestation. Okay. So you've got the coffee growing, then you've got the shade trees, which help, uh, again, coffee like cocoa is one of these trees that grows better in the shade of other trees. And then I assume that the, the shade trees will be factored into the carbon equation eventually is that is that yes. is there a no okay exactly okay and now what and this in is the... a technology that maybe they can replicate so the idea is to show that this is very like this technical assistance that Nestor and TechnoServe are providing to the farmers it's very successful so maybe Nespresso can scale up or other coffee companies can also come and have a use of this type of coffee. As I mentioned, coffee grows originally in this Ethiopia forest, no? so it's very important to protect the forest and also to to engage the farmers on uh, on coffee production. The the financing is is partly contingent on this whole process, turning the land systems into a better carbon sink, and that's the second part. How how does that work? We hope that all of these activities implementing on the ground we'll be able to generate emissions reductions, mm -hmm. which is the, we will be able to contribute to reduce deforestation uh, in Oromia, or not only deforestation, but also to reduce greenhouse gases emissions coming from other sectors. And then the biocarbon fund will pay for these emissions reductions. So the idea is that we will pay um, for around 10 million 10 million ERs, or 10 million tons of uh, carbon, carbon uh, equivalent. Mm -hmm. And then this will be distributed uh, according to a benefit sharing to the communities or to relevant stakeholders in the, in the region that are contributing, that are making an effort to generate these emissions reduction. So now you've got all these flows coming in here. You've got private sector money coming in for... For the, for the agriculture programs themselves, and then you have this carbon component where by looking at everything that you're doing, you're expecting, okay, through all these interventions, we can make sure that this landscape captures at least 10 million more tons of carbon, and if, and if we achieve that, then additional funding will go directly to the communities. Exactly. I get confused with all these different agencies. You've got the biocarbon fund. You've got, can you just summarize again? I know we said it, but maybe... Restate again which organization is responsible for which funding flowing into this area and how? Yes. We started working at the national level with the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility. But when we came to, uh, to the state level, we, are, we started to work with the Biocarbon Fund. And they have this, it's called Biocarbon Fund ISFL, which is Biocarbon Fund Initiative for Sustainable Forest Landscapes. And this facility has provided this grant of 18 million U.S. dollars that will go for five years. And the same facility, the Biocarbon Fund ISFL, it's committing or has made this commitment with the government of Ethiopia to buy up to 10 million tons of CO2 equivalent for a period of 10 years from the Oromia region. Mm -hmm. And then this will be distributed uh, to relevant stakeholders, not only communities, but also all the, the stakeholders that are relevant or that are making an effort to, to reduce emissions reductions in this landscape. That's Karen Kahele of the World Bank explaining how the Biocarbon Fund and the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility work in Ethiopia. I'll be back in a few minutes for some closing thoughts from Eli Baruti. But first, I love podcasts, listening to them, and even creating them 
which forces me to think of this really wonky stuff in clear and simple terms, which I hope is helping you to understand these fascinating and important but often complex issues. Good books will do the same, and one of my favorite writers on this subject is Bill McKibben. He's got a new book called Oil and Honey, The Education of an Unlikely Activist, which compares the building of a movement towards sustainable agriculture to the raising of one year's honey crop. I just downloaded the audiobook from audible.com, and it's riveting. You can get it too and support Bionic Planet at the same time by getting a free 30-day trial at audibletrial.com forward slash bionicplanet. That's audibletrial, all one word, dot com forward slash bionicplanet. And bionicplanet there is all one word too, no dots or dashes, as opposed to my website, which is bionic-planet.com. There you can also support me by becoming a patron. I've set the patronage page up so that you can support me per episode, but with a monthly cap. So if you think $5 per month is good for a five-episode month, you can pledge $1 per episode, but with a $5 monthly cap. That way, if I don't manage to generate five episodes in a month, you're not paying for something you didn't get. And if I go nuts to deliver 20 episodes one month, you won't get whacked either. By the same token, you can offer $5 per episode or 10 or 50 or whatever. Now back to the remaining part of my interview with Ellie Baruti, who coordinates both the Biocarbon Fund and the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility. I'm wondering if we could pick up a thread that we started on earlier, and that's this this role of the private sector. Um, as, as editor of Ecosystem Marketplace, I tended to focus in the early years on voluntary projects where the private sector would always come in as buyers of offsets you know, to reduce their own footprints. But we always knew that the real drivers of deforestation are big agribusinesses that are sourcing their products from places where they're chopping forests to grow soy, graze cattle, or, or plant these oil palm plantations. So we did have these other movements to get big companies like McDonald's to stop buying from those areas. And there was always this sense that these were all parts of a puzzle that was coming together, that, that, that the carbon finance element and the supply chain stuff, that it would all kind of converge. Uh, but we didn't really know how. And then uh, I was in Warsaw when you guys announced the formation of the ISFL. And it was a real uh, epiphany to me because what I found interesting, the carbon payments were government to government. There was no private sector carbon finance coming into this. And the private sector was coming in with these offtake agreements, basically committing to source their products from regions that reached out or that reached certain degrees of, of sustainability. And we've since seen this model taking place in, in other areas. I did an episode uh, last season on Dannon's efforts in Kenya, where they were using private sector carbon finance, but then with but the real private sector investment was in offtake agreements, agreeing to to buy from farmers who participated in the in the program. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how this whole convergence took place within the ISFL and why you didn't have any private sector carbon finance coming in to this effort. We basically learned that the private sector had been really impacted as a whole by what happened in the carbon market and became very sensitive. And there was no Paris Agreement and we didn't know what was going to happen, blah, blah. But... None of them told us we're not interested in the work you're doing. A lot of them told us we think this is really important. We recognize and in our business models, climate is very critical. We're trying to understand the impact on our business 
from climate. So we recognized the private sector was there, was willing to work with us, but it had to be in a different format. It wasn't going to be as buyers of tons of CO2. This is a big issue as Red Plus evolves under the Paris Agreement, especially concerning the issue of so-called internationally transferred mitigation outcomes, or ITMOs, which are carbon offsets, as opposed to payments for performance. What's the difference? Simple. If you transfer an emission reduction from one country to another, then the buying country gets to write that reduction off against its own emissions. The selling country sells that reduction in exchange for money. Now the rules on this are still being written, but major forest countries like Brazil and Indonesia have signaled that they don't want their emission reductions being transferred abroad. Payments for performance, like the ones we saw in Ethiopia, do support conservation finance, and their amounts are determined by the greenhouse gases removed from the atmosphere. But the country making the payment isn't buying an offset meaning they do not get to mark those emission reductions off on their own ledger. Carbon offsetting may then become primarily a domestic tool, meaning Brazilian companies can buy Brazilian offsets to reduce their own carbon footprints, and those reductions will also count towards Brazil's national emission targets. But if an American company wants to buy Brazilian offsets, those emission reductions will count towards Brazil's targets and not towards those of the United States. The rules are still being written and the decisions will probably depend on the countries of origin. We'll come back to this in more detail in later episodes. So that's when we started to think, would you, you know, we started to talk to companies, could you work with us on the ground, what would it look like? And we haven't been prescriptive in that. And we have um, different models evolving. Um, but it's so far, I think, been more on the agriculture side than anything else. And yet I think there's scope for energy. But we haven't yet really um, gone down that path far enough yet. Mm. In terms of agriculture, uh, when we started to talk to buyers and traders, of the large companies, right, the Unilevers and the Bungis and others, Mondelez, um, we got a sense that they would think about different models. And so there it could be parallel investment alongside us, so not necessarily a mixing of funds, but they do their things, but we have the ultimate objective of getting to the same place, um, which they want deforestation, free supply chains, we want green growth as well, so it matches. There was a discussion about whether sourcing from specific jurisdiction would be made easier, and that's something we're still working towards um, with the Brain Trust and others. So if there are stamps of approval for jurisdictions, could it be a way of sourcing? Um, so these, I mean, we haven't been prescriptive, Steve, so there's different examples and ideas floating around uh, and that we're working towards. So, I th but it's very much more on the ground implementation. And I think country, uh, private sector that are doers in that respect would find an easier way of working with us. I think the private sector that struggles and we struggle with are those, are those that focus only on carbon 
because the scales are different and then I think we become you know it's just how does the risk of that work you know the private sector doesn't want to take on board the risk of the jurisdiction not performing and yet we're really trying to get ambition at the jurisdiction level so I think it makes it hard to see how you fit together in s with certain private sector but I think with others it's probably a clearer picture on how to move forward are there any universal lessons we can draw from this or is each country so different that you can't even begin to talk about universality? No, I'd say there are some uh, big universal commonalities. I think um, vision, a country, you know, if it, there really needs to be, and you see this come out very nicely in the funds, countries that have clear visions and know exactly where they want to go and how they want to get there is super helpful because you know, then they can paint that picture, they can explain to others, they know where they want to go, how do you bring the others on board with you, whether they're ministries or stakeholders. So I'd say vision is huge. Having somebody champion that vision is huge. Um, and I think in the past, at the project levels, you know, it was a lot dependent on the champion, and we're seeing more of that. You still see that. So where countries are persistent and really champion with that vision and passion, very different to where you know there is an uncertainty or lack, you know, lack of clarity. Um, I'd say good program design, simple. Um, but an effective, don't take on, don't make your life more complicated than it needs to be. Take on a stepwise approach. These programs are huge. You might want to not tackle every driver at the same time, but focus on the key driver. Because there's so many other pieces around that that you have to figure out, bring people along with you, make sure there's clarity, good communication. Finance is another piece. You know, uh, so what we're seeing is more and more that because of scale, uh, the champions have to be pretty good at understanding um, what this mosaic is looking like and how it gets funded. So can they raise additional funding? Can they attract it in? What are they going to do? Because you need investment funding alongside the trust fund money to help yeah. the scale of these programs. So I'd say there's a few things there that I, I would still say are common to project and program and across our programs. I know you have these meetings, these FCPF meetings, and you know, but I've never been to one. Who gets invited and who sits at the table? You have forest countries at the table. You have donor countries at the table. But you also have civil society at the table, indigenous people's representatives from across the different regions. Um, we have um, representatives from private sector. We have a women's observer have parliamentarian observers, we have UN Red observers because when we were set up, uh, UN Red was also being set up, so we thought it was useful coordination. Mm -hmm. uh, UNFCCC, international organizations, and I'm probably missing somebody. But these are all the folks at the table that are, you know, everybody has a chance to see documents before they come to the meeting, everybody has a chance to input. If they don't like something, it's a way of saying, can we discuss this because we've not understood it very well, or we're concerned that someone's not included. Um, and so I think, you know, our gender, our women's observers keeps us on our toes for gender. Are we being, you know, are the indicators there? How are we measuring this? What are we doing? Why were there so few women at the last workshop? 
you know, I think these are fantastic ways of keeping us on our toes and just making sure everybody's on the same page going forward, and I think it's great. Can you maybe talk a little bit about who's not at the table but should be? Our last evaluation told us we don't do enough on gender. So now we've got a, a budget that is just um, you know, directed at doing better and doing more on gender. We learned our lesson because we also had budgets in the past on helping capacity building programs for indigenous people in civil society from the south. We've learned loads there, so it's a really nice way of thinking through can we do the same on gender as we did with indigenous people in civil society. And then we have a budget for the private sector because it's still an area where we are struggling to understand the nuts and bolts. We don't speak the same language, we don't necessarily have the same timetables, but we also have the same ambitions. So how can we make sure we tie the different pieces together to get successful public and private partnerships? So I'd say, you know, there are, we could always, I mean, there's this, there's so much to speak about, but I think some of these pieces are, are important to, to help strengthen, I guess, the programs going forward. How does that whole process work? A few years back, indigenous people weren't at the table, and there was a lot of noise about that, and then you kind of adjusted to that. Can you talk a little bit about how that whole thing played out? So the first ever um, funding we did for indigenous peoples and civil society, we had a funding envelope, and they basically applied for money from that envelope. And we got, uh, I don't know, maybe 15 um programs out of that or projects out of that but basically we manage the funding and then we started to say well wait if we really want to help indigenous people build up their capacities why can't we work with indigenous organizations give them the money get them to organize themselves and really be the responsible the, the entities responsible for managing the money and we have very strict rules on this so we did uh, the entities we work with are now bank, World Bank stamp of approval on their fiduciary and procurement capacities. So we built up those institutions in that way, we helped. And now they receive the funding directly and they take on board what are the important projects, how do they as uh, entities discuss which entities should get the money, how much, they've set themselves up technical committees. So I think there's been a nice evolution there in, in the capacity building program. And if we can do the same for gender, so really look at um, how can we be really mindful in making sure uh, women um, are more included, because forestry can be uh, a man's world, at least in the ministries. How can we make sure that on the ground the men and women issues are addressed so that there's no anger or um, discord in terms of participating in these programs uh, or receiving funding from these programs and so I hope we can learn very much from the feedback we got from the indigenous peoples program not just how we did it but the actual projects on the ground that can help feedback into the strengthening of the gender program as well. So what are some of the indigenous groups that you fund directly? As, I mean I know Koika was talking about uh, trying to get funding directly, and they even created like an indigenous bank. I think they teamed up with EDF to create something that would be effective enough and transparent enough to receive 
funding from one of the World Bank entities. Was that you or was that someone else? I'm, I'm just trying to you know, connect some dots that I have here of my own. No, we never uh, helped set up a bank, so I'm curious about that. I'd be very interested uh, to know if uh, who they were and what that was about. But if you have information, send it to us. But I can tell you the recipients of the money that um, from indigenous people. So in LAC, we're working with Association Sotsil, Mm-hmm. In uh, Asia, it's Tepteba, okay. and in Africa, it's uh, Empido, the Menyoto Pastoralist Integrated Development Organization, Okay. based in Kenya. Can you flesh out one of those just so we can get a better feel for how it works? We worked with Empido to make sure that they could manage bank funding with the transparency and accounting needs uh, of bank standards and they receive a lump sum from us and basically MPDO have set up a call for proposals um, they have a, a technical committee that's anglophone and francophone that decides on those proposals and then they are in charge of divvying up the money uh, following it up making sure the project entities deliver and and we see the products i mean we we have our oversight and supervision but that's sort of normal bank stuff but they're really the champions we did the same with civil society. So, for example, Pactra in Africa does the same, but for civil society in Africa. That's Ellie Baruti, who oversees both the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility and the Biocarbon Fund, closing out this edition of Bionic Planet. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, then you can give me a good review through whichever service you use to reach us. Or you can become a patron at bionic-planet.com where you can support me for as little as $1 per month. That's all for today, but I've got plenty of good material from two weeks of climate talks in Bonn, and I've got some vacation time coming up, so I should be able to roll out some more of these. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick, now back in Chicago. Thanks for listening. Bionic Planet.